Thanks, Joss, and uh, lovely to see you this morning, everyone, and uh, g'day to those who are at home or far away uh, joining us on YouTube. Lovely to have you with us as well. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app or something like that and you want to follow along, which I trust is a helpful thing to do, you might want to Google Romans 10 and uh, Bible Gateway will probably be one of the first uh, options there and you can click on that and uh, follow along the Bible passage as we work our way through it. We're in, it's week two of the big question of why do some people not become Christians? Uh, why is it that some people uh, don't become Christians? And last week we saw that from God's perspective it's because he is in control, he's sovereignly in charge of who becomes a Christian, who will trust and follow the Lord Jesus. It's to do with God's sovereign choice and this week we we kind of work into the second part of that question which is to say God's sovereign choice his ruling over who will become a Christian isn't something that just remains this lofty idea but that actually gets worked out in practice through the very real lives of people making very real life decisions uh, accepting or rejecting the good news of the Lord Jesus that there is life and hope in him And so today we're going to think a bit more about what that looks like in terms of the message and the response to the Lord Jesus. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help, seen as he's in charge. Let's pray. Isaiah writes, God says through Isaiah, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Heavenly Father, your grace is amazing and your mercy is deep and it is patient. We know that we are disobedient and obstinate, but we long to be the people who you reveal yourself to, who are found by you, So please, by your word and spirit, would you make yourself known and make ourselves found by you today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, it was sometime around Christmas 2005, we had a baby who was a few months old. Uh, We were in America, it was a Sunday night, I would preached at a church in Connecticut, just outside of New York City, and then we were driving the four-hour drive back. Uh, to Massachusetts. Sarah and Hamish promptly fell asleep in the car. It was just me and the highway. And I normally go okay when it comes to direction. I never remember street names, but direction and I are okay. Um, And uh, I know that in four hours of driving, maybe I have to make about three turns. So it should be fine. The first turn was early on, and the problem came because... Like with most highways in America, you need to know which direction you need to go. Do I need to go east or west on this highway? West, I thought. I was wrong. Uh, I needed to go east, but I went west. I knew I was on the right highway. I didn't know I was going in completely the wrong direction. Until about two and a half hours later, when I had driven all the way through the state of Pennsylvania, 
and received a warm welcome to the state of New York. We were well and truly on our way to Niagara Falls, nowhere near where we needed to be. Uh, the big clue was the big, the big welcome sign, welcome to New York State. The four hour drive was now eight with a baby. Now here's the thing, I could take the sign to be a good thing, I need to listen to it and stop and turn around, or I could simply see it as an uh, unwelcome intrusion that we have on view in Romans chapter 10. Uh, too many of Paul's beloved fellow Jews had res hadn't responded to Jesus. They'd seen him simply as critiquing their driving ability, right, instead of hearing his call to stop, turn around and follow him. You're going completely in the wrong direction, Jesus says to God's people. Turn around, come back. Life is this way. A right standing before God is found by trusting in me. You can drive as long and as far and as carefully as you like, you will not get there going in the wrong direction. You will not get there without trusting in Jesus. You will not find righteousness, a right standing before God, eternal life, unless you find it in Jesus. Trusting in Him, not working for it your own way, no matter how well you think you're travelling in your own direction. You need it by trusting in me, Jesus says. I'll give it to you. I'll get you there. I'm the only way. So the first thing Paul talks about at the end of chapter 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 30, is that the Jews have stumbled over Jesus. They've stumbled over Jesus. What then shall we say? Pick it up with me at chapter 9, verse 30. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him, the stone being a person, the Lord Jesus, will never be put to shame. Here we have that very upside-down nature of the Christian message, that the upstanding religious zealot misses the fact that being right with God is a gift to be, it, be received. It is not a goal to be achieved. And yet the wayward sinner who knows they don't have a leg to stand on, ironically find the life and hope of righteousness that comes by faith, a right standing with God that comes by trusting in Jesus. Jesus himself illustrated this beautifully uh, in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, didn't he? Remember that the two people go up to the temple to pray, one is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector, one is the upstanding religious zealot who goes up the front and stands up with his arms in the air and says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this guy. Right? I do all these good and religiously proper things. 
I've ticked all the boxes. Right? I'm achieving my own righteousness. The tax collector falls on his knees, beats his breast. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, I remember visiting someone in Long Bay Jail and ended up talking to the wrong inmate. But um, the guy I was talking to told me, as a Christian, he said, it's easy to tell people about Jesus in jail. Because there's very little self-righteousness. Everyone knows they don't have a leg to stand on. For the religious person who pursues their own right standing before God, when Jesus turns up, it makes no sense. What do I need him for? I'm already doing this. For the person who knows that they've fallen short of God's glory, who could never achieve their own right standing before God, Jesus turns up. Oh, thank the Lord, you're here. Jesus is either the foundation stone that you crash into and fall over because you're pursuing your own right standing before God by your own merit and achievement, or he's the foundation stone that you humbly believe in and build your life upon, trusting in his merit, his achievement, because you know without him you could never have that right standing before God. It's not about your zeal. It's not about your effort. It's about submitting to Jesus and trusting in him. It's the only way that you will ever have a right standing before God. And the person who puts their trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. Paul goes on in chapter 10 to talk about their zeal, the zeal of these religiously upright people, his fellow Jews, who will not submit to the Lord Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Right? Christ was the whole point of the law. The the goal to which the law was working. The law was meant to remind you that you are sinful, that God is holy, that there is a need for forgiveness, that you need to be in fellowship with God, that there's a great big barrier. And every time... The the Israelites would come to the temple and see the gigantic, insurmountable temple curtain. They are to be reminded that there is a big, whopping great barrier between them and God. And it's not just the curtain, it's their own sinful hearts. And the, the faster they run, the longer they drive, the more that they try, it's not going to bridge that gap. But God promised that he would send a saviour king who would tear down that curtain, 
who would remove the barrier of sin and guilt and death and enable people to come and find a righteousness from God that is not their own achievement, is not something that they they need to plan out and work towards, it is something they need to, to receive and to depend upon that is given to you as a gift. And you submit to that. You place yourself under that as your only hope in life and death. The goal of the law isn't, look, we did it, check out the righteousness that we made. The goal of the law is, oh, praise the Lord for Jesus and his gift of righteousness. No matter how zealously you pursue the achievement of your own right standing before God, you will never, ever get there. Sincerity doesn't equal truth. You can sincerely and believe, you can sincerely and consistently and safely drive across the state of Pennsylvania in the wrong direction. It's not going to get you to your goal, to your destination. Or to be a little bit more um, contextual, you can sincerely believe that drink, drinking bleach will cure coronavirus. And you will be fatally and sincerely wrong. Augustine in the 4th century said, it is better to limp in the right way than to run with all your might in the wrong way. It is better to limp trusting in Jesus than to run with all your might seeking your own righteousness, your own right standing before God. It's not by your zeal, it's not by your effort, it's not by your own achievement, it is simple. Believe upon the Lord Jesus. Moses writes, verse 5, that this, Moses writes this about the righteousness that's by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that's by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend to the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Right? You don't need to do those impossible tasks. You don't need to achieve the impossible thing of of achieving your own salvation. Paul's quoting Moses in the book of Deuteronomy and what he's talking about in Deuteronomy is that salvation is something that God himself will achieve. All the way from the beginning, it was always God's plan. It was always by faith. It was never by your own strength. What do you think? That you're going to scale the heights of heaven to climb your way up in order to bring Jesus down, to to bring about an incarnation of a saviour king that you need and do not deserve. No, you can't do that. And guess what? We don't need to do that. Because Jesus willingly and lovingly already came down and took on the frailty of human flesh to live the life you couldn't live and to die the death that you deserved. You don't need to scale the heights of heaven to bring him down. He came down all on his own. 
And what do you think? You're going to descend to the depths to deal with your own sin? To achieve your own resurrection to eternal life? No, you can't do that. And guess what? You don't need to do that because Jesus has already done it. He's already died for your sin and tasted the depths of death and was powerfully raised to eternal life. So what do you need to do? You need to hear and believe. Verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Don't think that these are different things that Paul's talking about. He's using parallelism to make the point. That believing in your heart is about your whole self, your whole life, your whole identity, your whole being. Placing all of you onto the the foundation stone of the Lord Jesus, saying here is where salvation is to be found. It's submitting to him, trusting that he is Lord. That he is Lord over all. He's King and God and he is the one that you, you bow your knee to. You trust with your life and your death and your eternal future. Horatius Boner, writing in the 19th century, wrote this beautiful hymn. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, here I stake my eternity. Not on the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, another's griefs, on these I rest, on these alone. Jesus, Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done. There both my death and life I read, my guilt, my pardon, there I see. Lord, I believe, O deal with me as one who has thy word believed. I take the gift. Lord, look on me as one who has thy gift received. That's all it is. Faith in the Lord Jesus, receiving the gift. But how then can they call on the one, verse 14, they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If Jesus is the only way and a right standing before God cannot be achieved, it cannot be worked for, then hearing the message of the Lord Jesus seeing the message of the Lord Jesus proclaimed into all the earth, surely has to be a priority, doesn't it? We work our way back through Paul's logic that we need to send people to preach the good news in order that people might hear the message of the Lord Jesus and believe in his name, call on him, and that they might be saved. It's 
Simple, isn't it? Profoundly simple and profoundly beautiful. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's an image of God's people going into all the world, carrying the gospel of the Lord Jesus and the message of grace that is the free gift of right standing before God that comes by faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus who lives and reigns forever. So you think about us going into our week this week and the places that our feet will carry us, the doors that we will walk through, the people we will walk past, the jobs we seek to to do, the chores that we're working towards, the people that we're caring for, the job that we're doing, the contribution that we're making to our society and to people's lives around us, to our families, to our loved ones. As we're taking meals, as we're, we're driving to work, as we're walking the streets, how beautiful are those feet that will bear on their lips the good news of the Lord Jesus? knowing that all those other things that we're doing during the week, as valuable as they are, as important as they are, as good as they are, as zealously as we go about our daily tasks and doing all the good and right and proper things that we're meant to be doing, none of those things can achieve our salvation. None of those things will point other people to Jesus' salvation unless we speak of his grace with our lips. This passage should remind us of the great priority of evangelism, our great desire that many would be saved, that people would hear the good news of the Lord Jesus and be eagerly desiring and praying and and seeking opportunities to speak. It reminds us that we want to be a church that sends people, that joyfully gives people away and sends them to the ends of the earth in order that more people might hear the wonderful message of the Lord Jesus. Because faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Paul says that message has gone out into all the earth, that his beloved Jews have heard it day in and day out and still not responded. But chapter 9 reminds us that he's not responsible for that response. He's just responsible for speaking the good news of Jesus. Other people are responsible for their own decision when it comes to hearing and responding to the good news of the gospel and God is ultimately in charge of who will repent and believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. 
And his mercy is long and it is deep and it is patient. All day long, he says, I have held out my hands. All day long, God has held out his hands, the hand of mercy and grace. If you would only believe. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Friends, may we be the kind of people who God found even when we didn't seek him, whom God has revealed himself to even though we didn't ask for him, and that with our confidence in the Lord Jesus, we might graciously and winsomely and lovingly keep speaking of his grace until he returns. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you once again for your amazing grace to us in the Lord Jesus. We pray for those who are here this morning or those listening in who aren't sure where they stand with you. Please help them not to run with zeal in the wrong direction, but to simply stop and receive the gift place their confidence in the Lord Jesus that they might be saved and may all of us pray and give and go for the sake of other people hearing this wonderful news may we have beautiful feet as we take Jesus to the nations and to our neighbours and to the next generation for your glory. Amen.